You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. My family is actually down in Alabama, uh, Montgomery, Alabama, because my in-laws are, are there, and that's where they've planted church. Um, uh, they're church planters, and that's where they're serving. And so, you know, my wife being in residency never really has much time, but they're able to give her the Labor Day off, which meant for the first time in many years now, she has that three-day weekend. So uh, they've never seen Junior either, uh, my son. And so it was a great opportunity for them to go, and, and so they went down there. And so right now, I just FaceTime with them before service. They're, they were entering into their, um, their service as well. And so they're doing a lot of catch-up, and a lot of good stuff is happening. So they'll be coming up uh, tomorrow. Now, they've been gone since Friday, both my kids and my wife. And quite frankly, I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> I don't. <clears throat> before they left, I actually I, I planned all sorts of things because it's the first time in four years since I had a weekend like this. And... Um, so Grace, she asked me before she left, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when, when we're gone, when we're, when, we're travel, when we're out? And I said, you know, I was thinking about traveling, you know. Uh, but really, I, I was thinking, I thought, I thought about playing a round of golf, and thank God it rained. Uh, <clears throat> I thought even about going for a run into D.C. We have this wonderful WNOD trail that goes all the way into the city. I was thinking about walking around, grabbing some good food downtown D.C., and just kind of Ubering it back. But then, thank God it rained, too. Um, so I even thought about going all the way to Manassas. This is how crazy I am. I even thought about going all the way to Manassas and randomly joining a pickup paintball game. <laughs> right? But then I realized how easily I bruised. So I didn't do any of that. So what did I do on my Friday night and Saturday with no wife and no kids? Pretty much, again, the first weekend without having anyone for about four years, I, I played with my dog. I ate too much ice cream, which, quite frankly, isn't unusual. I grilled a big, massive steak for myself. I watched a couple Netflix shows, and then I, uh, in guilt, went to church, and then I prayed a little bit more for watching too much Netflix. I read my book. I edited my sermon. I rehearsed it a little bit more. I then Facebook stalked all of my church members, and then I went to the gym to watch ESPN, but always ends up watching the Food Network channel. I came home, and I FaceTimed with my family, and then around 9.30 p.m., I fell asleep, and then I woke up because I had to open the door for Sharon. So, so maybe you think you have a problem with stepping outside of your comfort zone. I had an entire weekend to do anything I wanted to do, but what did I end up doing? Just more of the same old thing, really. I loved every minute of it, minus the whole not having the family with me. Now, here's the thing. We all seek comfort, don't we? Turn to the neighbor and say, you're too comfortable. We do. We know where our boundaries are, and whenever we come close to that edge, we kind of fill up with anxiety, right? We fill up with anxiety. But did you know that the flesh is all about staying in your boat? It's all about staying in your boat, staying in your zone. But where's the Spirit of Christ? Where is He? Well, he's actually right outside of that boat. He's on the water, and he's asking you to join him today. He's asking you to join him. 
folks, is actually outside of our comfort zones, on the water that is in the place of Christ that deepens our faith. Did you know that? Did you know that when you're staying in your boat, your faith can't go deep? It does not deepen your faith. Your trust in God cannot be deepened either. It is only when you step out of that boat and you're walking where Christ is at that deepens your faith, that deepens your trust, and where you are changed forever. But this change, stepping out of your comfort zone, is terrifying. It's thrilling beyond belief, but it is terrifying. But quite frankly, as Christians, as followers of Christ, it is outside of that boat, it is outside of our comfort zone where we ought to be today, tomorrow, and every day after that. That's where we need to live. Not in our comfort, but out of our comfort zone. Amen? And so, all that reminds me really of our text this afternoon because it's here that God is pushing the sons of Jacob outside of their comfort zone, and they are terrified. But what do we know about God? Is God good? Amen? Is God for us? Amen? Is God sovereign? He is. He is. And so it's on the water. It's sometimes in the midst of those crashing waves and those roaring winds that God, He is molding us. It is in that chaos, you see, of your life that God is refining us. Why? Because it's all according to His sovereign plan and purpose. And folks, just as God did that to the sons of Jacob by mercy and grace, God, he is wanting to do that to you today in the same way. He's changing you. So in the past few weeks, we've been seeing how Joseph points us to Christ, that there was this awesome parallel between Joseph's life and the Savior. But today we'll see that Joseph is actually even more than that because Joseph is also a picture of God's providence. Meaning what? That Joseph here is a picture of God. Because here we see through him how God faithfully and how God steadily works out his plans and all the details of our lives. And even though your life today may feel like a roller coaster, a roller coaster of emotions and circumstances, we can all trust. For those of you who follow Christ and confess your, Christ as your Savior, you can trust that behind it all stands the one who calms the seas and commands the winds. So, it's here we need to look at Joseph, and by looking at him, we'll learn a couple things about who God is and about his providence. Now, during a difficult time in your life, how many of you guys have gone to the book of Job? Really? I'm assuming all of you guys have at one point, right? You're suffering, you're going through trials, you're going through some sort of pain issue, whatever it is. And so oftentimes you want to be comforted. And so sometimes we look into Psalms because that's quite comforting. It's a wonderful book. But sometimes we want to get, make sense of what's going on. So we go to the book of Job. But why do we go to the book of Job? Why do we read it? We read it because, again, we want some sort of resolution. We want some sort of answer to the problems that we're facing right now. But here's the thing. This is what's so funny. The book of Job doesn't give us any answers. But we keep going to the book of Job's. It's like going to your fridge and hoping, hoping that something else, is like, uh, something else appears. We keep doing that. In fact, the more you read the book of Job from beginning to end, you come out of it with this knowledge. With the knowledge that, you know what, there's suffering and it's a part of life. But not only that, even those who are truly righteous are not protected. 
are not protected, are not immune from the difficulties of life. And so when God answers Job, God, he doesn't really give an answer, but rather he declares the impossibility of Job to fathom the awesome eternal plan and providence of God. He's like, were you there when I made the earth's foundation? Can you command the morning and the dawn to take place? Have you journeyed to the origins of the sea and to the recesses of the deep? And when you come out of the book of Job, the only thing you can really say is, God, you are infinite. God, you are awesome. But also in that, God, you're mysterious because there are no answers. There are no real resolutions. You're mysterious because we don't always get the answer that we're looking for. Now, that's what Joseph's brothers learned as they experienced God's providence as it was administered by the hand of this ruler, the man. Who is the man? Joseph. So let's think about the strange events that the brothers encountered when they arrived in Egypt. They made their way to the place where they hoped to buy food, right? And there was, again, the man who asked a lot of questions and had that crazy demand. So as they were before this ruler, they expected to show him their brother, I mean, after all, that's why they came back, right? To get more food and to show Benjamin because Benjamin was the ticket. And so as they stood before the ruler, they intended to give back all the silver which was put in their sacks, if you recall, in the previous chapter or the previous uh, portion of this chapter. And as they stood before the ruler, they were anticipating to retrieve Simeon who had been left behind as a hostage. Then hopefully, if everything went perfectly well, they would take the grain they purchased and be on their way home. But before they could do anything, the man, he says something to his assistant. And then all of a sudden, they're whisked off to some strange place. They're whisked off to the governor's house, the prime minister's house, to the house of the second highest ranking official in all of Egypt. And these brothers were terrified. What is going on? What does he want with us? Why is this happening to us? Can't we catch a break? Why can't we just pay for our food like everyone else is coming here and just go? Is he going to imprison us? Is he going to enslave us all? All these things were happening, and the brothers, they just, they didn't get it because how could they get it? How could they connect the dots? They didn't see any connection. They thought they were innocent. Everything that this governor was doing is completely just from left field. It was baffling. It was straight up mysterious. So the brothers, they thought that something bad was going to happen. They sensed that a trap was coming. So they quickly spoke to the governor's assistant, and they tried to explain about the money that was in their sacks from the, from the last trip, and they were prepared to give it back. In fact, they even brought additional money for additional grain. In other words, they were willing to buy more food than that was needed, hoping that this gesture would cancel out any possible retribution the governor might have against them for the money in their sacks from previous. But something surprising happens in verse 23. The assistant says, oh. it says that he already received their silver for the grain. We got paid. Furthermore, the assistant claims that it was their God who had given them the treasure in their sacks. And rather than punishing them, the assistant simply brings Simeon out and says, here you go, here's your brother. Now can you imagine what was going on in their minds? How they must have all felt. I bet they're all just looking at each other, dumbfounded, scratching their heads. Because first of all, how does he know about our God? Secondly, how did he receive payment when they knew that the silver was, in their, was still in their sacks? 
This is confusing. It was mysterious. And sometimes God's providence, it just cannot be explained. How God guides the universe, how God cooperates with everything that's happening, it can't be explained. And so these guys, just, they didn't get why things were happening the way they were. They were confused. They were baffled. But the most mysterious event comes at the end of the chapter. Because by then, it has become clear that they're supposed to eat with the governor at his house. So he has returned, the governor, and he has spoken to them about their father. How's your dad doing? And he spoke to them about their brother. And now he gives the order to serve the food. And so they all get seated in the places which have been assigned to them. And so as they're sitting, imagine this. They're looking back and forth at each other, and then they suddenly realize that all 11 brothers, all grown men whose age has probably been really hard and not so obvious, they've all been seated in the order of their birth. What? Can you imagine what was going on in their heads? This is really, really weird. What's going on? Something has to be up. How could anyone know about? Fine, if there's two brothers, three, maybe even four, but 11, almost a dozen brothers, and you set us up perfectly from youngest to eldest, how could anyone know this about us? It is just too big to be a coincidence. So what's happening here? It's not that Joseph was pranking his brothers. You see, Joseph was a tool by God to demonstrate that there was something, that things that are nowhere in our peripheries, but that God, he's orchestrating behind us. He's working in your life, even though you don't see it. He's orchestrating in our lives, and though it would be impossible for us to connect all the dots, we have sometimes, we have to sometimes simply concede that, you know what, I don't get it, but it's okay because God is in control. Can you say that? Can you say in the most darkest, trying times of your life, I don't get it, but I have to concede that God is in control. I don't get it, but God's hand is over me. I don't get why this is happening. I think it's unfair that it's happening. I think it's unjust that it's happening, that I'm in the dark, but it's okay. It is okay because God is with me. Can you say that? We have to concede that even though life may be completely mysterious, that God is moving. Look, I think... Why this lesson about the mystery of God is important for us is because we are a people who tend to seek after answers. Especially this generation, if you don't know answers, we Google it, don't we? Like on the spot, we Google it. Yeah, even for yeah, Grace and I sometimes, when we don't know what to eat, you know what we do? I Google, what should we eat? There's actual thing that says, hey, here are some restaurants that pop up nearby. And we go, oh, I haven't tried that one. Let's go there. Right? We're all about that. I mean, just a couple weeks ago, my garage door suddenly broke, and so what did I do? Did I have to go through the yellow pages? <laughs> no. I quickly went on Google, or really on YouTube, and I looked up, and I found a series of steps, and I fixed it. I'm super proud of myself. <laughs> if you're in debt in your life, you need to go and consolidate it, work on paying it off. You have an injury, what do you do? You go to the doctor, they give you some remedy, some prescription, some stretches, whatever, and you do that and you get better. And so for us, when it comes to our faith, we also want neat packages with easy to understand directions, don't we? When we deal with a tragedy, we want an explanation from God. You better tell me why this happened, Lord. When we have problems with finances, we say, God, then you better give us a job. 
You better fill my account up. We expect all these cookie-cutter answers from him, but that's not how God works. Why? Because that is not how faith works. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you get all the answers and those who are unbelievers are left in the dark. Uh Uh-uh. Being a Christian isn't nice, isn't neat, and is not obvious. Being a Christian means that we know that we are dealing with a creator whose knowledge is unfathomable in every detail of the universe, including our lives. And if you can somehow wrap your feeble mind around the infinite and the power and the mystery and the eternality of God, then quite frankly, he is no God to be worshipped. The scriptures repeatedly point to us to the mystery that surrounds him. Isaiah 40, 28 says, Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired. He will not grow weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. Or how about Job chapter 11, verse 7? Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you know? What does it mean to follow God as a Christian? It means that we are to acknowledge that we are not in control. We are not in control. And that oftentimes we don't even know what is going on. That we're dealing with knowledge too unfathomable for our literal minds. But God has never, and you got to trust this, God has never once dropped the ball in your life. Never once was there a mistake. Never once did you go, oh, man, I wish David didn't do that. Or I wish, I, I can't believe I let him do that. He has never once dropped the ball in your life. And he has never once dropped the ball in all the universe from the beginning of time to the end. We might, know, we might not know what his plans are, but we can certainly know, and here's the thing, who he is. We might not know what will happen tomorrow, but we can trust that he is the same today and tomorrow. We can know that he is consistent, that he is constant, and he is credible. Though there's mystery, we can still have faith in his character. Can I hear an amen to that? So we need to start trusting God for who he is rather than for expecting him to answer us the way that we want him to answer us. Now, the reason why there's still so much fear in our souls when it comes to circumstances and to the uncertainties of life is because we fail to recognize the second great truth found here in this text. The first one being God's ways are mysterious, but we need trust in who he is. And the second point is this. God is showering you with his grace, whether you know it or not. You know that? He is showering you. He is lavishing you. He is pouring an abundance of his grace upon you, whether you know it or not. Now, sometimes and oftentimes, really, it's kind of difficult to read someone's motives. Turn to your neighbor and say, I don't get you. In other words, it's hard to understand the intentions of their heart. And it's really for that reason that God, he forbids us to judge one another. He forbids us to judge one another. Now, here's the thing. We can judge the actions of whether they are right or wrong, the actions. But we can't judge hearts. We just can't. And so what happens is that what we think we know about one's intentions, right, our kind of assumption of their intentions, it really ends up determining our response to them. So, for instance, when we think someone's intentions are evil, malicious, wicked, whatever you want to call it, 
we become afraid. We become defensive. But when we believe someone's motives to be good, no matter how harsh it might be, whatever they say, we remain comforted and assured. Do you get that? In this account, the brothers, they assumed that the governor's motives were evil. They thought that this prime minister, this ruler, suddenly, who's allowed them to come to their, into his home, that this guy, he was up to no good. That he had some ulterior motive. He was hostile. So they were afraid of everything that had happened. Actually, their fear was kind of funny, if you think about it. For example, when they heard that they were being taken to the governor's house, according to verse 18, they thought this. Oh my goodness, he wants to attack us, and he's going to overpower us, and he's going to seize us to be his slaves, and then he's going to take our donkeys. Lord, please don't let him take our donkeys. So get this. I think it's hilarious. You'll laugh too. The prime minister of Egypt, the one who controls all the food in the known world, the one who has nations coming down after nation after nation falling at his feet who are all willing to pay an exorbitant price just to have some food in order to survive. This prime minister who is the second in command in all of Egypt and who rides around in a royal chariot pulled probably by the finest horses in all the land is plotting to steal their donkeys. Because you know, you can never have too many donkeys, right? That's, that was our concern. Oh my goodness, he's going to steal our donkeys. It's funny, and yet that's what we do with God all the time too, don't we? No, you can't have my tithe. No, you can't have my offering. No, you can't take this from me. No, you can't have that. Do you think God actually needs your money? Do you think God is somehow dependent on our collective 10%? He goes, oh my goodness, David forgot to tithe. Now I'll be low. Just like the brothers, we also have this misunderstanding of God's motives. And so here again, Joseph teaches us about our relationship to the God of all providence. And here's a lesson, folks. In Christ, in Christ, the intention, the motive, the ambition of God for you is to shower you with grace in all circumstances. You know that? Do you know that his discipline is an act of grace? You know, sometimes the pain that we feel is an act of his grace. The trouble and the calamity that sometimes we put upon ourselves, the poor decisions that we make, and yet somehow God in his grace gathers us up again. Binds our wounds. We misjudge God all the time and we mislabel his motives as evil when actually they are acts of grace. Even your fall into sin can display the grace of God through repentance and his willingness to restore you back to him. Look at Joseph and all that he was doing for his brothers. First, they were reassured about the money. It's been paid. There are no issues. God has given me the treasure. Act of grace. Secondly, right when they thought that they'd be imprisoned instead, Simeon is set free and returned to them. They probably thought that they'd never see him again, but the governor, he kept his word, and Simeon was returned unharmed. Again, acts of grace. Thirdly, they were taken into the governor's house, and despite thinking that their donkey was going to get stolen and that they would be enslaved, they were instead given water to wash their feet, they were given food for their donkey, and they were given the royal treatment, acts of grace. Then the governor arrived, 
and began to talk to them. Now, originally they had fear that he'd be harsh, and so they just trusted this man. But instead of being harsh, the governor says, how's your dad doing? And then he blesses the youngest. He blesses Benjamin in God's name. And then unbeknown to them, what did Joseph have to do? He filled with such emotion, he had to rush out because he was crying. Filled with emotion. You see, the governor was not out to destroy him. No, he cared for them. Act of grace. And finally, to their astonishment, there was this great banquet that was set before him. A huge feast. And so you have to think, these guys, just the day before, were about to starve to death. There was no food in all the land. They ran out of it. And today, they're sitting at the feast, at a feast in the prime minister's dining room. And it's not just good food. It is plenty of good food, too. It is an abundance of good food, five times as much for Benjamin. And there's plenty to drink. And God is saying, I want to give you more. Act of grace. Look, to the believer... The fact that you can say, God is mine and I am his, that is the grace of God. To the unbeliever, the fact that you don't believe and yet today here you sit out of hell, that is the grace of God. To the majority of us who live in comfortable homes, that is the grace of God. When you come home from your job and your child runs to meet you in good health, that is the grace of God. If you're able to put your hand in your pocket and give your child some spending money or be able to put your hand in your pocket and take out a fellow brother, sister, or stranger for a hot meal, that is the grace of God that you have in abundance. When you go into your house and you sit down for a hot meal and you sleep in your warm bed, that is the grace of God because we know like what happened in Hurricane Harvey that over 40,000 homes were completely annihilated, completely destroyed. And tonight, a couple billion people will go to sleep hungry. What you have today, what you have right now, is by the grace of God. Why do we keep thinking that we deserve more, that we deserve anything good? Do you know those who have a, do you know those who have a problem coming to God? It's those filled with pride. Because pride says, God, you owe me for what I've done. God, you owe me for what I've accomplished. In fact, God, you owe me for all the things that I had to suffer through. That somehow now you, you owe me big. And friends, we don't deserve anything good from God. God does not owe us anything good. What do I deserve? I'll tell you what I deserve. I'll tell you what we deserve. We deserve the wrath of God. And yet, for some mysterious reason... All we get is grace after grace after grace and new mercies every day. So what's going on in your life? Maybe you're terrified of God and his ways. Maybe the sins that you've committed have caused such guilt in you that you think the worst about his motives. Oh, he hates me. He's out to get me. But folks, today we learn that while we ride the roller coaster of the highs and lows of life, God's purpose stays the same. And that is to extend grace to the undeserving sinner like you and me. Because don't you see it? Don't you see it? It is only by his grace that draws us near to him. And that is the only way for us to come to him. Just as much as you can feel his presence at work during the good times in your life, you have to know this, that God is just as much at work in the dark, painful times in your life too. He is not absent. And maybe right now you're all thinking, well, where's my grace? Where's my feast? 
Pastor Dave, where's my silver? Where's my plenty? Where's my royal house? And where's my connection? Folks, that's when we need to realize that God's grace that he lavishes upon us will not always look like what the other person has in their life. We should not compare each other, compare uh, our things to one another, but more than any material gain, if you want to see grace in its truest splendor, look to the cross of Christ in its truest splendor. Jesus was not sold, just sold as a slave by his brothers. He was crucified because of our sin. But like Joseph, he didn't seek revenge. Instead, Jesus took the punishment for our sins, and he was judged in our place. And so there, as Jesus died, the wrath that you and I deserve was placed upon Christ. And through his death, the wrath of God against sin was forever satisfied. Hallelujah. Imagine that for a moment. All the wrath that God has stored up because of your sins and because of my sins was satisfied in the death of Jesus that his wrath is no longer aimed towards you. But now what does he do? He aims to lavish you with grace. So where is the grace? The fact that there is now nothing that is in our way from God granting forgiveness to all who trust in Jesus as Lord. There is nothing in the way. The fact that there is nothing, that there is nothing <clears throat> that we have to do because there is nothing we can do to earn God's love but that his love for you is demonstrated in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. And not only does God forgive us, but he also adopts us into his family, not because we deserve it, but because in Jesus, God, he showers his grace upon sinners like me. So is your life a wreck right now? Is it kind of spiraling out of control? Is it confusing, maybe a bit bleak, gloomy? You know what? God's moving. And there will be mystery in the way God does it, but we have to trust that he is behind everything and that he is in control of everything. You believe that? So let's trust in who he is. But not only that, from today's lesson, we're reminded that God's motives are always good, that God is always good. And that's why it's a wonderful thing to learn that when we say God is good, we say all the time. God is good. All the time, always for his glory and for his plan, even though you may not get what he's, what's happening and why things are the way they are, trust that God, he is lavishing us each and every day with his grace. And most importantly, more than the common grace of a warm meal and a family to come home to, he has given us his one and only son who did it all so that we could have it all. Do you believe that? We worship God and we can worship God only by his grace. Let's pray. Before we go into our Lord's Supper, I want to give you guys a moment to just simply meditate and reflect on what you've heard today. Maybe you've been disheartened or frustrated with the, just the complexities of life, and you think, God, certainly there's no purpose behind this. There's no rhyme or reasons to why this has happened the way it is. And so it's leading you to just a greater level of frustration and maybe even resentment towards God, thinking, God, where are you? Where were you in this time? Where are you during this time? Just like the brothers, they, they didn't get why, we, why things were happening the way they were. But we know, as Joseph demonstrated through his ability to 
just lead and, and orchestrate the entire event that God, in a more magnificent and powerful and glorifying way, God is doing something too, something bigger, something better. Maybe that's something you need to repent of right now. Say, God, I, I, I haven't been trusting you these days. I've been falling back on my own ways, trying to make sure that I pick myself up, that I you know, fend, my, fend for myself, that I just do things according to my plan and my purpose. And maybe, maybe right now God is saying to you, can you just stop? Can you just surrender yourself to me? Tomorrow may not look any easier than today. In fact, next month may be even harder. Even next year might be the rougher season of your life. But you know what? Do you trust me for being me? If so, then you'll know that you're never alone in this darkness. In this difficulty, in this transition of your life, you're not alone in this. But I am faithful to my children. Can you confess that today? Let's take a moment to simply pray. Take your time. We'll take a minute or so. And then we'll go into our Lord's Supper. Let's pray. And so now as we pray, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, There are a few things that we have to understand. But this is really a redeclaration. This is a recommitment, if you will. A testimony of your faith saying, oh, Jesus, this is what you did for me. And as I partake in the elements, Christ, I am united to you by the blood and the death and the resurrection. But also know that this is a remembrance, an act of remembering, or really an act of worship, by which you remember what Christ did for you. That all that he has done was for you, for me. That he has given us an abundant life for the life that we live here today. But he has also come to give us the life of eternity. Another amazing thing is that through his death and resurrection that he has come to give us a relationship with him. That for the first time in your life you will have this harmony, this unity, this true commitment to the love of your soul. And so before you come, this is only for those who have professed in the lordship of Jesus as their Lord and Savior But this is an opportunity for you to judge your own hearts. Because like you've heard in the sermon, we can't judge you, but you can judge yourself. And if there's, sin any, if there's any sin that you're harboring right now, before you come up, that is a sin that you must repent of and give up to the Lord. But in that repentance, it is a resting upon His grace. Say, God, you are good to forgive. When you are ready and after you prayed, if you are a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, please join us. Come to the middle and come back out.
I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Dear Holy Father, we thank you for this holy moment to come before you in humble repentance. We worship you, Lord, with not only the songs we sing, not only with the words that we hear from the sermon, but Lord, we worship you by remembering. We remember, Lord, and we never want to forget all that you have done because of the sins that we have committed. The sins, Lord, that has plagued us for so long. And so, Lord, we are thankful, truly, that you, in your graciousness, would send your Son to die on our behalf. But, Lord, it is also with great sorrow that we realize it was because of our sins that led to this great sacrifice. So today, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we all come here together, Lord, we acknowledge the fellowship of those who, have, those who are partaking in this, and I pray that you will unite us closer in compassion and love with the common purpose, with the common denominator that Christ, you are the nucleus of this entire church that you are the center of our lives, that your blood brings us together. And so, Father, we pray now that as we prayerfully and worshipfully take this, that you would allow us to partake in it in a manner worthy of the great sacrifice that you have done for us. So, Lord, we thank you again, and we honor and we love you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.